Ahoy! It's your boy. And today is Sunday, October 29th. It's been a very colorful week for me. And uh, as I was sort of settling into my chair and kind of taking inventory of my thoughts, not that I write anything down, um, but just sort of thinking through, I don't know, just kind of seeing what's top of mind for me right now. I was actually realizing that this week has actually been a lot about live theater, which is very surprising. Um, I think part of it, it's hard to really know if it, you know, if things come up because they're in the zeitgeist for me or if they're in the zeitgeist because they kind of come up in these conversations. But I know last week I was talking about my time as a child actor and recounted this kind of surreal experience I had shooting a commercial uh, when I was a kid. And actually it reminded me, I actually wasn't, uh, as soon as I, yeah, as soon as I was on recording, I thought it's kind of insane that actually one of the craziest experiences I have uh, recording a commercial, I never ever think about. <laughs> and uh, when I so yeah, I'll just tell the story real quick, and hopefully it won't derail me too much. But I did think of it as soon as I stopped recording yesterday. Um, but uh, another kind of crazy commercial experience I had as a kid was, uh, and I don't remember the audition process, but I do remember getting booked to do this commercial for Pepsi One. And I don't know if uh, if you're old enough to know what that is, or if you remember it at all, even if you were. But Pepsi One was basically kind of like a diet Pepsi drink that came out. And I don't know if it had like one calorie or one gram of sugar. I don't know what it was, but it was called Pepsi One. And um, the spokesperson for their commercials was Tom Green. And uh, if you're from my generation, Tom, there was a sort of period where Tom Green was ubiquitous. And he was like just the face of comedy and the face of MTV and just kind of this, I don't know, this enclave of, I don't know, uh, teen counter culture in the late 90s early 2000s something like that and uh so I actually got booked to do this commercial for Pepsi One and I think part of his campaign was he was like going from all across the United States to different college cities and doing something associated with like the local sports team or whatever it was basically a way to tap into like the college demographic market or whatever and so basically I get booked to do this commercial and um you know, I sort of recounted this story, right, of doing the kind of Richie Big Bucks commercial. And that was a very cool experience for me as a kid because you kind of show up and, uh, I don't know, it's like your first taste of what uh, shooting a commercial is like. And there are cameras and lighting and makeup and you, you, it's kind of like the circus comes to town. Well, for Pepsi, well, I guess what I should say is, you know, that last commercial I was talking about was just kind of a relatively small production. But I guess when Pepsi One and Tom Green comes to to town it was it almost felt like you were showing up to a, a place where they were like shooting a movie i mean there's just exponentially more production and all that sort of stuff but um uh so yeah i show up for this pepsi one commercial and uh i remember meeting tom green and he was just like very somber and like very like uh you know i don't know he's very zany and stuff when he's sort of on but obviously off the camera he's a very different person but he was very nice to me and was very pleasant with my father and uh, yeah, it was like the circus had come to town. There was just like a, a couple of blocks in this sort of kind of wealthy residential neighborhood that had been blocked off. And I think the premise that I was told was that I was going to be in the yard of this house kind of shooting uh, shooting hoops, kind of shooting basketball. And Tom Green was going to pull up in his Pepsi One car. And I don't know what was going to happen. We were going to have some type of interaction or whatever. But the crazy thing, and I never got confirmation of this, but basically the shoot didn't happen. I basically went to like wardrobe and makeup and was all ready to do the shoot and we just sat there for like two to three hours or something like that 
And eventually some production person came up to me and said, hey, actually, we're moving. <laughs> we're moving on with the shoot. We're, gonna, we're, we're going on to the second location. We're actually not going to shoot here. And I was like, okay. And I was actually kind of relieved. And the reason I was relieved was because at that time, um, I had this like, I had like scabbing on my face. I've told this story in the past. But there's, there's this period from my childhood that was actually very traumatic for me in a lot of ways. And we're not going to go through the whole thing. Uh, if you happen to have access to the archives or if you've been receiving these for a while, you can kind of skim through those and see if you know the story. But the, long, the, or the, the short version of the story is that uh, when I was younger, I was basically like picking blackheads on my face or whatever. And my nails were very long at the time. And uh, I sort of w woke up one morning and my face was like, all cut up like around my nose where I had like been picking blackheads I had like scratched my face up without even realizing it and so there was this couple week period where <clears throat> my face was like scabbed over or my, my nose was kind of scabbed over and to to deal with this I basically stole concealer or makeup from my mother and uh was like using that on my face to like cover these scabs that I had um and it just so happens <laughs> that when I was shooting this commercial was, I don't know where it was in the whole timeline there, but it was like during this time period. And so although it was never said to me, you know, no, no one from production, I never overheard anything and no one ever said anything to my dad. My sense was that I showed up to this shoot and I had basically concealer on my face. And my assumption to this day is that the production saw me and was like, oh, well, we can't shoot with this kid. So let's pack it up and move. Over. Like, I'm just not camera ready. It's not like there's anything wrong with me other than. I don't know, it's like a kid showing up with a black eye or something. It's like, that. how is that going to work? So my, my sense has always been that I showed up, I was not camera ready, as they say, and uh, they had to pack up the production and move. So anyway, that's like another story that kind of sits in my mind from that. But it also kind of, I guess two things kind of come up for me, and I don't know, we're getting kind of weird kind of quick, but, you know, I remember when that happened, feeling a sigh of relief, and of course, part of that was I was feeling self-conscious about how I looked, and I thought, it's insane that I'm going to be, like, on camera, and I guess this is going to be my, you know, my my face in posterity. It's, it's like, sometimes you'll see, like, a like a major blockbuster film, and you think, God, they got to have, like, a, there is this process in post-production for major blockbuster films called beauty work, and it's it's becoming increasingly important, or a big part of like big actors contracts which is part of the post-production process is the actors or somebody they'll come in and they'll work with someone in cgi and they'll basically beautify the shots making them look better and this is sort of a you know if an actor is on set and they have like a big pimple on their chin or something that's going to be a big part of post-production is like editing that out but every once in a while you see a movie and maybe where it's clear the production just wasn't able to accommodate that and so you'll kind of see these continuity things sometimes where an actor will have like a lot of concealer on their chin or on their face somewhere where they're, they're basically covering a huge pimple. And it's kind of distracting, but I've always thought like that would kind of be my worst nightmare is like I'm a, I'm a new actor. I'm finally in my major motion picture debut and there's some important love scene where the camera's like tight on my face and lo and behold, there's some uh, pimple with a mountain of concealer on top of it that's trying to be concealed or something like that. But um. But uh, yeah, this stuff happens. And actually, I've even heard of sometimes like that will shut down production for like a number of weeks. If you have an actor with like a major pimple or something like that, that can actually stop production, which is pretty nuts. But um, 
the other thing that came up is like when they told me that like we weren't shooting, I was very relieved. <clears throat> and I remember when I kind of got back in the car with my dad, my dad was very bewildered by my behavior. And I think he asked me at one point where I don't remember how he worded it, but he was basically kind of asking me like, are, am I sure like for someone who ostensibly wants to do this for a living or wants to be a, an actor when they grow up, he was just very bewildered by my relief to like not have to shoot the thing. And it just is interesting to me because on the one hand, uh, I understand that as a question, but the way that he framed it to me was very much like as if there was something wrong with me, you know, well, here I am ostensibly saying that I want to be an actor. Here's like, you know, a a very good opportunity to like do that (laughs) or to like do something very public. That's very cool. And yet for some reason I'm relieved not to do it. And the thing that just really is like beguiling to me about that whole thing is why wouldn't it be obvious? I guess, I guess what I'm saying is it was never broached. The topic was never broached to me like, hey, dude, there's something wrong with your face. You know, like not only was it just never addressed by my father that like, hey, I have a bunch of scabs that I'm hiding with concealer on my face, which he's looking at me. I mean, he has to know that this is happening. Uh, and I'm sure on some level he's trying to spare my feelings or doesn't want to make me feel uncomfortable about it or something because I'm certainly not bringing it up. Um, but yeah, this kind of failure, failure to connect the dots is always something that's kind of stuck out in my mind. But I just remember sitting there in the passenger seat and kind of, I don't want to say being made to feel bad as much as it just happened to make me feel bad, um, that I was relieved kind of being let out of that experience as cool as it was i mean i remember meeting tom green and that was very very cool but yeah this kind of relief of like you know not having to be subjected to that experience of the or the or the discomfort that i was feeling and it's just one of those things that like as an adult i look back on and i one i feel very sympathetic to that kid and uh because to me it makes perfect sense like you know kids don't you know even things that kids ostensibly say that they want to do with their life, they just don't think about it that way. You know, they're not thinking about the larger implications. It's just something that's fun for them. You know, they're not thinking 10 moves ahead about their future career or something like that. Um, and that's even why kids who have like a, a lot of talent in something, they may look up when they're 14 or 15 and decide that they don't want to do something because they maybe they just want to hang out with their friends. Um, you know, they're not thinking of their future in that way. Um but yeah, there was something just very disappointing for me about uh, when I look back on it, um, just kind of not feeling seen, you know? I mean, I don't want to uh, overstretch this a little bit, but it was almost, there's something about, there's just some, some uh, there's just something glaring and obvious about my situation that I just feel as an adult. I Maybe because I experienced, I'm very hypervigilant of in other people, meaning I've said I'm someone who's very like self-conscious or can be very... Um, yeah, I think I was saying not vain, uh, but yeah, just self-conscious about my appearance. One of the ways that happens is something like a pimple. Oh, and actually this should, this actually relates to Buddhism, which sounds crazy, but hold on. If we get there, it'll, it'll make sense. But as someone who knows what it's like or feels how insecure they get when they get a pimple, you know, I guess my fantasy is always that like people will see it and think, oh, that's gross. And maybe they do, but I in a way, I kind of do people a disservice because because I know how uncomfortable it makes me or how how self conscious I get when I see someone who happens to be a happen to ha- happens to have a very noticeable pimple or break at, or outbreak or something like that. 
they immediately have my sympathy. You know, I mean, the first thing I generally notice is that the types of like pimples I notice on other people are usually exponentially worse than anything I've ever had. And even then it doesn't look that bad or really the extent of my response is, oh, that person has a pimple and then I move on with my life. Like as if <laughs> how could anybody else having a pimple have the power to stop me in my tracks or consume, uh, yeah, more than just a passing observation from me. The idea that like my pimple will somehow stop traffic or something like that is a little, uh, uh, grandiose, I would say. But the point I'm trying to make is, is rather than just sort of assuming that people will be disgusted by me, although not a, not that it's necessarily something that they want for themselves, that they wouldn't be sympathetic. So I think there's a way in which I kind of shortchange people in that regard. But the point that arises from that is what? I don't know. But since I said it, my mind is going to Buddhism because it happens to be the case that as I was sitting in my, I, have this, I take this class called Buddhism in China, and uh, we were talking about this idea of like the power of thoughts. And there's this idea with kind of modern mindfulness and meditation, which is you try to establish some distance between yourself and your thoughts. So as you're sort of attuning to your breathing or something like that, as you're sitting in mindful meditation, listening to your Headspace app or whatever you happen to be listening to, you're supposed to just kind of distance yourself from the thoughts that arise and see them just for what they are, which are like passing clouds, but they are not you. So if anxiety happens to come up, you sort of, you don't say, oh, I'm anxious. You just say like, oh, there is anxiety. And again, just trying to, uh, you know, not identify yourself with your thoughts. And one of the things that the teacher came up, which was, I thought, very uh, salient, meaningful for me, is she mentioned this idea of a pimple, right? So you had this idea where you're like, oh, I have a pimple, which means I'm ugly, which means other people are looking at me, which is a challenge to my self-conception, uh, which means that I'm not going to, I don't know, attract this person that I want in my life, or I'm going to miss out on this opportunity, or yada, yada, yada. So very quickly, once we attach meaning to our ideas, or we think we are our ideas, that thing can spin out of control very, very quickly. So not that this is all of Buddhism, but this idea that there's a certain strain within Buddhism that sort of acknowledges that, that we are not our thoughts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the thing I was, I think the thing I was <laughs> really hoping to get to is this idea that <clears throat> theater, live theater, has actually been a big part of my week. And I'll start with the bad, which is I, last year, really, last fall and spring, I bought a lot of tickets to go to classical concerts and to go to the opera. And I probably went to about uh, at least a dozen, if not many more, classical concerts last year, at least once a month. Sometimes I was going like two, maybe even three times a month. Um, and I also went to maybe about five operas or something like that. Although I generally enjoy going to the concert hall, and part of that is because I kind of prepare for the experience, I'm always disappointed by the opera. <laughs> and I think it's because although I enjoy opera in kind of like an academic way, um, it's a, I really do look at it at like eating, I, I look at it as eating my vegetables, which is, it's part of the Western canon. You know, I feel some sort of obligation to kind of at least be, you know, passively familiar with some of these works. Some of them are, 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 actually, are actually intriguing to me. And so I kind of, Maybe like listening to them or maybe watching a stage production of them or something. But actually going to the opera always kind of fucking sucks. 
So I made this deal with myself, which is if I'm going to keep, quote, going to the opera, I'm not actually going to go. And what San Francisco Opera happens to have is for every production they do every year, they have at least one, maybe they have more, I don't know, but they have at least one performance that they live stream. And so I've sort of reconciled myself for the last couple of times or the last two operas that I've, you know, had some passing interest in seeing, which is, all right, I won't... uh, uh, invest a whole evening and like go to the opera. But what I will do is I'll buy this sort of live streaming thing and I'll, I'll sort of watch it at home. And the first one I watched was, I think was Il Travatore, I think, which was actually very, very good. I was even thinking, um, yeah, it was just a very good production. And uh, the thing I bought recently though was, um, actually, I feel like I'm stepping, I feel like I'm confusing things. I forget the last one I saw, but the point is that it was very, very good. What they did most recently, though, was Lohengrin, which is an opera by Wagner. And um, I got to tell you, as soon as it started, I was like, ah, fuck. Like, this is so... Well, first of all, I'm so glad I'm not there. But yeah, it just seemed very boring. Um, But yeah, it was just one of these things where I was like, yeah, I'm just really glad that I'm not there. It just seemed like a total waste of money. Um, Actually... let me tell you how I'm really feeling right now. I'm sort of here. It's late at night. I'm sort of talking to this microphone. And I don't know if it's apparent to you, but I'm just kind of like, <laughs> I'm sort of walking through this thing and, um, you know, I'm not feeling it. I actually sat down to record this like, uh, like five hours ago. And I got about as far as I am now. And I just sort of gave up. And lo and behold, that's exactly how I'm feeling right now. And, um, yeah, I don't know. In these moments, there's a part of me that's just like, well, just get through it. Actually, it's interesting that we're talking about live theater because, uh, sometimes I do think like if you're in a live performance and this is true of music as well, if you're actually in a live performance and you're like, oh, this isn't going well or whatever, um, you know, that's actually kind of where you see what you're made of, you know? It's very easy to kind of get through things when things are going well. But, uh, you know, what if things are going real shitty? And it's like, well, you can't escape. You can't walk off stage. And yet here I am in a scenario where I can sort of look up in the middle of a conversation and decide, oh, this is going fucking poorly. And I can just stop like I did earlier today and just kind of go go about my life. But what I was actually sitting with as I was sort of doing whatever else I did was I was kind of thinking like, well, what, what's the motivation behind that? Meaning there's a way in which sometimes just stepping away from things, which is what I was about to do just now as I sort of stopped, and you probably heard my, my sort of gears turning, was I could totally press stop, step away, and just kind of go about my life. And yeah, this thing would not be recorded. Um, but uh, that's okay. I You know, maybe that's a sign, right? Like maybe that's my body telling me something. Maybe that's my uh, psychology telling me something. I don't have something to say. That's not the end of the world. Um, sure, I've made this commitment to myself, ostensibly, where I'll be recording these things. But at the end of the day, I just sort of shove these missives in a bottle and cast them into the ocean, like I said. And, you know, I don't know who reaches them. So the, the, the audience or the, you know, the people that I imagine receiving things are, are, are just kind of ephemeral anyway. So who's to say that, um, you know, anyone's waiting for it? And at the end of the day, even if they are, how many people are there? And so... I don't know. I have these kind of rationalizations, which is like, well, I'll just kind of go about my life. And if I want to get to this tomorrow, I can certainly do that. And maybe that would be better, I don't know, for the, what, entertainment value, for the quality, 
of the content or whatever. But this sounds like a crazy thing to say, especially as essentially I'm sort of asking for your attention to sit through these things. But really, the point of this is not to be entertaining. <laughs> I mean, I would very much like it to be entertaining. I would like it to be something, you know, that people kind of get wrapped up in or lost in or swept away in or something like that. But, you know, if I'm being honest about what this exercise is, is it something else? You know, there's a lot of names you could ascribe to something like this, and um, I've actually very intentionally not used that word. I've, I've actually tried to step around it. There's a lot of things you could call this thing that we're doing, but um, I'm not calling it that anymore. So for me, the only thing that this is, is something else. And so, you know, I mean, as I was sitting down, actually, I was yawning, and I know a lot of my uh, previous, or at least when I first started doing these little entries, I remember I used to yawn all the time which I think uh, we established was like a parasympathetic nerve response system to actually feeling anxious or whatever. Um, but yeah, it just took me back in this place where like I was first starting to do this. And I remember there were some entries where I would, I would just like sit in silence for like five minutes and I would talk about, well, the exercise is just like getting through this. And so, <clears throat> God damn it, <clears throat> this may be a bad installment or something, but... I just know if I hit pause and walk away and go about my life, yeah, it wouldn't be the end of the world. But the, but again, the point is just to like get it done. And I think part of, uh, <clears throat> I don't know, and I'm sorry, I'm sort of losing my voice here, but <clears throat> I think part of kind of tolerating it being shitty as well is just demonstrating to myself or whatever that um, it being shitty is just not enough to stop it. Or having one shitty... Um, entry is just not enough to stop me doing what I'm doing. And um, that might be disappointing in the moment. But I don't know. Maybe me continuing to talk here will just be like an investment uh, in my future self, which is, uh, you know, they can't all be home runs. But again, it's maybe it's a bit like, uh, oh, I don't know. I'm struggling for an analogy here. But um, I don't know. What's that Lao Tzu thing? A, th a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And they don't all have to be beautiful or gracious or uh, at the same speed. But as long as you just keep putting one foot in front of the other, you reach your destination. So that's what this installment is. It's just a one foot in front of the other entry. And so, um, hey, you want to take those steps with me? Great. If you want to hit the pause button, click the next one, that's totally fine too. You can engage at your own level. Um, and maybe for some people that's a deal breaker. But hey, that's okay. Um, so let me force this thing. I was talking about live theater. And so maybe this is one of those things too, where like our phones are listening to us. <laughs> but, um, so yes, I guess I'm saying I had this like low hanger and thing where I was like, oh, this shit sucks. Conversely, and again, I think it's because our phones are listening to us. And maybe in the last entry, I was talking about theater and all that sort of stuff. And who knows, now that I've said the word theater a thousand times, maybe I'll get even more of this. But I saw a, what essentially was a targeted ad to me about the National Theater in England that they now have a streaming service. And so I was kind of poking around on their website thinking, you know, I don't know, how could a theater company possibly have enough content to warrant someone paying for a streaming service? And I was kind of looking around at the content. And of course they have, you know, some Shakespeare with some famous actors, which is actually something I didn't really realize. The National Theater, um, it seems like they kind of hang their hat on like having, uh, especially uh, British, UK, I don't know, celebrities, kind of feature in their productions. Um, Benedict Cumberbatch as like Frankenstein or, so, or something like that. But um, 
I was kind of looking around, and I was actually kind of intrigued by some of the productions they have. Um, I'm more of a classicist, so you would think the things like Shakespeare or Chekhov would be interesting to me. But what I was really intrigued by is actually kind of the modern plays that I just I had never heard of, didn't know. And uh, that looked the stagings and productions looked very interesting. Obviously, National Theater has a bit of money to throw at things, so if anyone's going to do a good job, they will. But I rented um, this kind of new play, or there's basically three installments, or there came to be three installments. But it began as a one-man production called Death of England. And it's a one-man production, um, and it's just kind of very creatively staged. But to me, it kind of it kind of seemed to sort of index or kind of point to a couple of things that I'm interested in. And uh, if you remember me talking about In and of Itself, which is like a one-man magic show that happens to be very emotive and very powerful and very creatively staged, there was a little bit of that kind of cut from that cloth kind of aesthetic to this one-man show. Um, and so I watched it, and uh, I'm not going to go into too much detail about it. If you want to check it out, you certainly can. But it's basically a, a, you know, a British guy who sort of recounts the story of he had a very kind of conservative, i.e. racist father growing up in England, and but he also grew up with a, a black friend whose mother happened to be from Jamaica. And it's basically about him kind of reconciling his father's conservative values. Lo and behold, his father passes away at some point, and he has to kind of come to terms with this kind of secret life that his father was living, or comes to the awareness that his father was also struggling or trying to reconcile these kind of angry elements of himself, which, of course, like a lot of moralizing modern theater and art, is really just an extension of his own trauma, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but although like, I wasn't enamored with the production, I still thought it was pretty, um, pretty. Uh, I don't know, one, ambitious, Um but also, yeah, very creative, in a way kind of inspiring, too, because it was uh, written by a new playwright, directed by uh, him as well, and it seems like based on the success of this one play, he kind of redid it. Uh, um, I mentioned that the, the the lead of Death of England is this like white actor, and part of the story is he has this black friend, <clears throat> excuse me, who he grows up alongside, his mother happens to be from Jamaica, and so they did a kind of companion piece, which is another one-man show, which is told... Uh, sort of parallel story from the perspective of the black actor, which is actually much better. Um, it seems like the <laughs> the the white actor in the first installment of Death of England, he kind of did the whole show with this like very manic presentation, which I think was like a creative choice of like, hey, I'm going to be one man on stage trying to entertain people for about an hour and 45 minutes. And if people are going to kind of go with me on this journey, I kind of need to keep the energy up. And he also had some very kind of interesting moments, too, where he, like, broke the fourth wall. He would, like, jump into the audience or, like, you know, kind of address things that were going on. And those were actually the best moments. Those were the most somber. But there's this kind of heavy-handed thing that theater does a lot. And maybe I'll sort of talk about another instance where it was laid on super thick. But theater especially has this kind of self... uh, What's the word? Um, Self aggrandizing tone and actors do this a lot too especially stag actors is they they don't really speak the dialogue sometimes as much as they kind of sing songs speak it almost like slam poetry like one of the most nauseating things about slam poetry if you've ever seen it is the kind of i don't know the sort of self-aware kind of the the forced profundity of how someone speaks they don't just say the words they sing them 
as if you're supposed to be impacted by every word that they're saying. And it's very kind of up-speaky, that kind of uh, pattern that's kind of going on. And the other thing that actors do, too, is they try to convince you that something emotional is, is happening by speaking as if they're on the verge of tears, you know? So after about an hour and 45 minutes of that, it just feels a bit manic and kind of unhinged. Um, and I admit the second production, which is told from the perspective of the black actor, had that a little bit. But I would say it was just a much more interesting story in general. <clears throat> and then the final part... Well, actually, I'll, I'll say this. <clears throat> so I think, and I'm sorry, I, I know I'm losing my voice here, but the first installment of this Death of England piece, from what I can gather, was kind of staged and filmed just before the COVID pandemic. And the second installment was kind of put on stage and filmed right as the theater kind of reopened after COVID. And so the first production you're watching in the house is full. The second production you're watching it's a little, it's a little, uh, I don't want to say distracting, because in a way it kind of plays into the production a little bit. But the, act, the, 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 uh, the audience is let more than half empty. They've clearly sat people where they're sort of strategically sat uh, around the theater where there's like significant distance between the audience members. More than that, the acting area, it's this sort of stage that's, you know, extended past the proscenium and it's this like huge cross that is sort of built into the the seats or whatever. Um, almost like a black box theater production where there's kind of audience on all sides. Or if you ever see like, I don't know, imagine like YouTube or some festival concert where the stage kind of jets out into the audience and they're kind of surrounded on all sides. It's kind of that type of thing. But that entire performance area is like boxed in by plexiglass. Like we didn't have this so much in the Bay Area or I never saw it. But sometimes... You look at what's how some people were navigating COVID or like you'll see like in casinos or something. They basically had everybody in their own kind of like little fishbowl or plexiglass, whatever. That seems insane to me. But hell, we were all trying to figure it out at the time. But anyway, that's kind of what was going on with this production. And so it's very interesting in a way. And actually, the actor uses it um, kind of pretty well, kind of using the reflective surfaces of the the glass to, as, as a mirror or something like that. So clearly the actor is doing the best they can, and it was also just an interesting artifact of that time period. However, um, the third and final installment to this piece is they made a filmed, uh, an actual cinematic filmed uh, entry into this kind of story where they have the white and the black characters, not the actors. They use different actors for the film version, but they have them come together and, and tell yet another continuation of their story. So the first two parts is you have these one-man shows, white actor, black actor telling their individual stories that there's many points of contact between them, but they're this, yeah, but they're both this kind of like one-man show staged in very similar styles and that sort of thing. The third installment is a filmed multi-camera movie, um, although it's still very creatively done. It's still sort of cut from the same cloth, but it's like a live-action film. Uh, that tells a continuation of their story. And actually, I do remember seeing now that I said it's the final installment. I think there's going to be yet another installment that's actually the the two females, the two uh, mothers of these two characters or whatever. So I don't know. Maybe they're kind of beating a dead horse at this point. But the point is, is that that kind of got my mind on this idea of like theater a little bit and just kind of checking in and getting a temperature of like what's going on on the modern stage. Because when I was a kid, I went to theater all the time. I saw tons of plays. I'm actually, when I look back, it's kind of embarrassing to me how spoiled I was. I mean, I've literally just seen you know hundreds and hundreds of plays and musicals and that sort of stuff. So I'm very lucky 
in that regard. Um, but yeah, I, since I stopped doing theater, I just had my finger off the pulse of all that stuff. Um, but the thing that's really kind of lodged in my consciousness right now, and the thing I actually was really excited to see, but also felt like it might be a bit too, I don't know, heavy for some reason, was just today I finished watching uh, the National Theater's production of Angels in America with Andrew Garfield and um, Nathan Lane. Is that who it is? Yeah. And uh, it's incredible. And it kind of, you know, Angels in America is one of those things that I just happened to stumble on as a kid, which at the time I, ne- I really enjoyed it and it was very formative. For, I, I kind of knew that it was a big deal in a lot of ways for me, just like in terms of like my creative, forging my creative thought process or something like that. But just re-watching it, you know, and revisiting that story, I just, it, it was completely lost on me how many aspects of that play, how many points of contact there are between that play and like my creative life and even just like my, the life that I would go on to live in general. And uh, so I have to admit there was kind of a spiritual uh, uh, kind of component of like watching the play. Uh, not that it was a perfect production, but just revisiting that, it just, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I felt lucky in that I remember, maybe I've talked about this before, but when I was younger, obviously I grew up in a generation where like, if you went to the bookstore or you went to the CD store uh, or the video store is, is to me a, a, per- a perfect example of this, you would basically see all the available titles on the shelf. So you kind of knew what the canon of available content was, meaning um, for me, the easiest, easiest example is like if I went into the foreign film section of the video store, I would be intimately familiar with titles and directors and just the covers of movies that I had never seen because I was constantly, as I was browsing for content, I was always seeing them. In this digital digital age, basically the algorithm is just trying to keep showing you things that you might like, right? So when you go to Amazon or Netflix, you're basically just seeing like, hey, you might like, because you like this, you might like this. <clears throat> and so there's no sense of like of really this like there's no sort of agreed upon canon right like every bookstore every cd store uh every video store there's only so much real estate on the shelves so what gets placed there is very intentional and so the idea behind it is that it's the, the best of the best right so when you would go in the fiction and literature section of barnes and noble you would become familiar with like names like Borges or uh, Charles Dickens or Cervantes or, you know, I don't know, Dante, whatever it is, because you would just, your eyes would literally fall across the spines of these books and movies, et cetera, et cetera. And that's really how I got um, familiar with like a lot of theater growing up is you, whether it was Barnes and Noble or I don't know where else you would go, but you would just go to like the drama section and you would just see what was there. And I remember I was always intrigued by this, you know, double, the sort of boxed, sleeved set of plays called Angels in America, and it had this huge subtitle, Angels in America, a gay fantasia on, is what is it, a gay fantasia on modern themes, or something like that. Um, and then the, the two parts, which are Millennium Approaches and Perestroika. And so, just as like an object, I was very drawn to this um, um, yeah, just very drawn to this sort of, 
I don't know, there was almost like a religious or uh, a reverent type quality of this object that was like in this very special sleeve and had these very creative, colorful covers to them and all that sort of stuff. And I remember buying it and reading it, and it was just unlike anything I had ever read. Um, and it was just very, very strange. And it was not something I had any context for. It wasn't like, um, you know, Shakespeare or something, which is like you were supposed to read it. I had never heard anyone talking about this play or anything like that. It was just something on a shelf that I happened to see that felt important to me. And so I remember buying it and reading it. And for maybe a decade, it was just this thing that I had consumed. And maybe I read it a couple times, but just kind of lived in my head. And at the and honestly, I didn't understand a lot of it. I mean, there was a lot of like contemporary um, political and social and, you know, all types of references that I just didn't really get. But it was just something that was in my head. And I remember like in the early 2000s when they made that sort of multi-part miniseries with Al Pacino and Meryl Streep. Uh, and I remember seeing that and thinking it was very good. Um, and there was this kind of sense, you know, uh, I don't know if you're like me, but the things that I enjoy, I feel like a sense of ownership about, especially things that I just kind of stumbled on myself. I mean, there's a way in which, you know, uh, Angels in America was not as big as this, but, you know, you can imagine when I stumbled on Chinese philosophy for the first time, that was just a complete chance encounter. It's not like I sensed Chinese philosophy in the zeitgeist and was trying to, you know, I don't know, familiarize myself with like the, with like the next cool thing. Because I'm, I'm, I mean, I do, I have done that. I'm as guilty as that as uh, as anybody, especially when I was younger, right? Oh, what's the cool music? What am I supposed to like? Let me get uh, familiar with that very quickly. Or I actually, when I was younger, I would do that with movies. Like, oh shit, I'm supposed to know Kurosawa? Let me watch all Kurosawa's movies, no matter like how I feel about them. I'm supposed to like it. But there were a couple things that I just kind of feel lucky enough to have stumbled on apropos of nothing. And in that way, you kind of feel like you're being shown a secret. And Angels in America was one of those things. So when I saw that multi-part series coming out, I felt a little... Uh, possessive, where I was like, ah, shit, well, now there's going to be a lot of other people talking about Angels in America like they know it. Uh, And then my, I don't know what, exposure to it becomes what? Like, I'm just another person who likes it now, you know? And then I got to be that dork who says, yeah, well, I liked it back in the early 90s before anyone had ever heard of it, you know? (laughs) Even though he had, like, won the fucking uh, Pulitzer Prize for writing it, I still, you know, but to my 11-year-old mind, right, like, nobody else had heard of this thing. Uh, in a way, I feel that way about chess right now. Chess is bigger than it's ever been, but I feel I feel compelled all the time to say, "Well, I was fucking, <laughs> I was playing chess when nobody was playing chess," as if it hasn't been like one of the biggest games in the world for like thousands of years. But anyway, um, and actually, I I sort of forgotten about this, but I've seen a stage production of Millennium Approaches. I've never seen a full production of Angels in America, but I did see a stage production of Millennium Approaches, which if you want to be honest, is probably the better of the two, all told. Um, but anyway, I watched this stage production for the National Theater, which is in two parts, and I think altogether the play is about seven hours. So um, I have to admit that some of it was consumed uh, uh, aurally, A-U-R-A-L, aurally, as I was like cooking and stuff, or as I was working on a paper this afternoon. So it's not like my eyes were glued to the screen the entire seven hours, but I took in most of it. And... Um, Two things really impressed me. One, modern theaters has come a long way. I mean, the production stuff is really incredible. And one thing I remember reading, too, in the stage direction, Submillennium Approaches. I'm not going to go into the whole plot of the story. If you want to look into it, you can. But basically, one of the major plot points of Angels in America is uh, 
kind of the main protagonist, Prior Walter, is a gay man, I think living in New York City, and he's dying of AIDS. And he has this, he has these uh, visions uh, and hears voices of an angel who's telling him that he's, uh, 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 she maybe, is actually on the way, that she's going to come and there's going to be this great work or whatever that has to um, be carried out by, by um, Prior Walter. And the end of the first play is the angel kind of crashing in through the ceiling and announcing, proclaiming, um, you know, uh, behold, I'm here, the great work begins, or something like that. And I remember, even from a young age, reading the stage directions, which was very explicit in saying, this moment has to be a technological marvel. I'm paraphrasing here. But basically, this needs to be technically impressive. Like, if this is not a moment of, like, technical uh, uh, um, brilliance, lights, sound, it has to be jaw-dropping for the audience. It's not going to work as a theatrical moment. Um, and so I think a lot of productions have probably, like, I think there's a lot of difficult components for people to, to um, do this play successfully, but I think one of them especially is this angel scene. And uh, it really has to be jaw-dropping. And... Uh, yeah, the thing that they do in this production is very creative. But um, where am I going with all this? Yeah. Oh, yo, yo, we had such a good role going there. And um, maybe I'll sort of follow my thoughts here. But maybe one of the reasons this is hard is I'm sort of sitting here talking about this play, which I don't have enough time or maybe even skill or whatever to actually talk about intelligently, but maybe that's all besides the point. As I was sort of re-watching this play, though, I think the thing that really struck out to me was how... Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I'm kind of uh, waffling on whether or not I really want to go into this, but, you know, it's interesting that it's a play about uh, a, a man who's dying of AIDS, who happens to be living at a very... A critical moment in history, or at least it was perceived that way by the playwright and other people at the time. But the world was on the cusp of a very important change. And here you have this unlikely candidate who is having a very kind of mind-altering uh, and frankly scary experience where they feel like they're being spoken to by God, and they, for whatever reason, as it comes to pass, if you watch into Perestroika, is in a way that actually parallels the story of Mormonism, which I had forgotten was a major component, even though it's written by a Jewish playwright, and, Ju and uh, Jewishness and Judaism is a huge part of the story. I had actually forgotten how much of a part Mormonism is a part of that story, of this of this play as well, which is used very, very intelligently. And of course, there are moments of comedy as far as Mormonism goes, but it's actually, yeah, it's actually very thoughtfully and kind of tenderly kind of woven into the story as well. Um, like Joseph Smith, who has the, is it the umum and thurum? I forget what his tools are. But basically the angel sort of invests Walter Pryor with like this book and these goggles and this cloak. And basically he has a, a sort of spiritual calling that he has to follow. And he's going to play an important part in this revelation that's sort of being brought to America at this very critical moment in time. And a lot of uh, Pryor Walter's sort of uh, conflict is he doesn't want it. You know, <laughs> he sort of hears this call and he doesn't want to sort of take it on. And, um, you know, it's just insane to me, uh, and I try to talk about this as soberly as possible, but it was just wild to me to watch this and realize, you know, it's one of those, 
kind of art imitating life or life imitating art kind of moments where I realized I can't pretend to know anything about Tony Kushner, the guy who wrote Angels in America, but I have to believe that he had a period when he was young. I, I, I believe that Angels in America for Tony Kushner was probably something like a revelation, a creative revelation to write. It's just very interesting to me that it has this kind of encyclopedic quality to it. It happens to touch on all of these very sumptuous and very meaningful aspects of theology and spirituality and creativity um, and history. And uh, it has the type of encyclopedic quality that all the great works of art have. And it's just very interesting to me that that book would have sort of spoken to me from a bookshelf. And lo and behold, not through any amount of design or anything conscious, as my life actually played out, um, there's just a lot of stuff that comes up in that play that happens to be a part of my life. And um, I've probably talked about my time, not as a convert, but just as kind of an anthrop- almost as an anthropological interest or sociological interest, the time I spent with the Mormon church. But it's just... It's just interesting to me, <laughs> you know, to kind of watch this and see this piece that was created that, you know, is Angels in America... You know, how to, what would you compare it to? Is it the type of work of art that is going to have the same amount of impact as something as like Citizen Kane or something? I don't know. But as I was sort of watching this play, and it's not a perfect play, I was absolutely convinced that this was a piece of art that Tony Kushner felt called to create. And I'm not just talking about the way that we all feel called to create. I bet if we cornered Tony Kushner and asked about Angels in America, um, I would not be surprised if Tony Kushner felt something like a religious or spiritual calling to create that work, or believed in some real way that the story of Walter Pryor and getting this call from a, to be a, like, being a prophet or something like that, which is something that Walter Pryor is actually wrestling with, this idea that he himself might be a prophet and might play a pivotal role uh, in the tide of history or the, the tide of events um, if Tony Kushner didn't wrestle with that very thing himself. And that sounds like a very bizarre, kind of maniacal, like crazy thing to say. Um, I don't know that it is. I mean, unless you happen to be a, a biblical literalist, when you think about religious texts, if you think about the books of the prophets that we have, I mean, unless you really buy into the metaphysical part or the the sort of literal narrative of what they have to say which is like oh i wrestled with an angel yada 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 we can all agree that actually every prophet is self-appointed you know and i do think that there's a way in which modern artists are prophets we don't talk about them that way but i think the best artists in history have had something of a spiritual insight and i know that that word means weird things to people but I mean a very literal kind of spiritual awakening or consciousness-raising experience where they realize that the true artists, the people who genuinely create pieces of art that are, you know, a continuation of this dialogue that's happening through history, have had something like, they've had a real revelation, you know, where they have really felt like they are in touch with a kind of, their their mind is literally entering a room that not a lot of people get to see. And... Um, 
as great and as thrilling as that is. I mean, there's moments on stage where Walter Pryor has these sort of sexual orgasms, right? Or every time the angel is approaching, he has this erection. And when I was a kid, those things were like very salacious to me. But I think there's a kind of deeper level that that stuff operates on, which is, yeah, there is something kind of taboo and weird about the kind of, I don't know, the overwhelming uh, sensuousness or pleasure of that experience, but it's also very frightening too. And there's a way in which like the actual spirituality, right? Because there's a sort of, there's this kind of like, um, I think that's kind of the function that Mormonism sort of has in the play, which is traditionally Mormonism is seen as this very kind of like button up and very restrictive uh, form of religiosity, and it's a type of biblical literalism. And so that, that sort of operates, right? Like, you know, the Mormons would never believe that like angels are these hermaphroditic uh, creatures that have like eight vaginas and a bouquet of penises, as I think is how it's described in Angels in America, or that their arrival would be orgasmic or um, one that like a, a gay man dying of AIDS could possibly be a prophet or something like that. But I think the part of like the, the genuine religious or revelatory experience is that that's actually the real shit, right? Like if if religion has meaningful things to say about anything, it has something to say about those topics and incorporates those things. It can't, real, real, real spirituality, real transcendence, um, the real creative and generative forces of the universe can't have anything to do with not eating, not drinking caffeine, right? I mean, you can always decide to do that for yourself, but if if spiritually, if spiritual, if spirituality has to comment on anything, it's going to be the sexuality and these types of things. And the true creative works of art are going to deal with those. By the way, the Bible does, right? <laughs> Nobody deals with uh, death and sex more than the Bible. Um, but where am I going with all this? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe just to say that, you know, maybe watching that play was humbling again. I, I both felt very grateful that it was a play that I happened to stumble on as a kid. I didn't realize, you know, I kind of, you know, I, I go back to this idea of like, just feeling like I'm a, a, a person who kind of knows when they're in the presence of art. And it's not something I can always articulate. But I, when I look back, I go, I had a pretty good barometer in terms of like, the films I like to watch or, you know, the things that always had a lasting impression on me. And um, again, if it was just because everybody else was watching it, or it was cool, or it was canonical, um, that would be one thing. But I, yeah, maybe I just feel grateful that um, I seem to have been dialed into things that, even when other people weren't looking at them, I was really kind of taken with, and I found very impressive. And um, it makes me think that it's not an accident. Um, you know, <laughs> I've talked about, I've had this sort of uh, marinating creative project that, you know, for me, when it came to me, was kind of like a revelation, and it was like a very scary experience, and, uh, you know, it was both encouraging and validating, but also very sad, and again, it's just something that I continue to come back to, to, um, you know, watch a play that very much deals with that, and, you know, or someone who kind of hears the call, right, and I think we all have that in our lives, we, we feel called to do this thing, uh, it feels like it could be, <laughs> it, it could make meaning of our lives, and yet we spend so much time just kind of on the shore, waiting for permission, or something like that, and um, for some reason I'm thinking of this quote from 
Jonathan Blow, who's this video game maker and designer that I, I find very inspiring. But because of the types of games he makes, they're such a huge time investment. They take years and years and years to make the games. And so, you know, you have kind of have to evaluate very thoughtfully, like, is this the thing that I'm going to invest my time into? And I don't know if he was speaking extemporaneously or if it was a question that somebody posed in the chat when he does one of these live streams. But I think there was a question posed, like, how do you know that you're doing the right thing? And his answer was something like, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, you know, you can never know that it's the right thing, but you know what? You probably got a pretty good idea when the thought of not doing it kind of brings you to tears or even just thinking about the beauty of it or the potentiality of what it could be kind of brings you to tears. And I have to admit, when I think about this thing that I've been sitting on, you know, when I really tap into it, uh, again, the idea of not doing it or that I could live my life like not doing it um, seems insane and would be a catastrophic waste. And in a way, I would actually miss my calling. And yet, you know, because I can hear a thousand voices, maybe a thousand voices of angels telling me, well, then do it. I also have to be honest and know that like, I'm still very much in that place where it's, it's just not, it's not going to happen. You know, and I've kind of beat myself up about that for like the last uh, seven, eight years or so. You know, it may sound insane, but maybe you're also sitting with the exact same thing, which is, it's bizarre that I can that I could have been presented with a vision of something that I not only think would make sense of everything that's happened in my life up until this point, I feel like I'm actually called to do. And in isolation, I've never felt more certain about anything that this is what I'm supposed to do, and yet, at the same time, I'm also acutely aware that it's not going to happen right now. And... Yeah, I don't know. I've been beating myself about, uh, up about that for about seven years. But I don't know. You know? I also have to look at my life and say, and again, I don't believe that things happen for a reason, and I don't know that there's a divine plan to things. But I also believe, like, you know, you never know what work is being done on you in this moment. You know, like I said, when if you had pulled me aside or tapping on the shoulder when I was like 10 or 11 years old reading Angels in America and said, in 20 years, you'll see a film stage production of this and you'll see how this actually fits into your creative life. I mean, that would have sounded insane, right? So, I don't know. Maybe rather than force things, you just have to understand that things happen in their own time. And uh, I have to look at it like everything else I've ever done in my life, which is I've hemmed and hawed on a lot of things but when I finally say yes to something, I'm all in. And actually, when I look up, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. I mean, school is just a microcosm of that. You know, this idea for this creative project came to me. I, I mean, school was the farthest thing from my mind. And yet, I can tell you with 100% certainty that there were courses that I needed to take, there were books I needed to read that only came to me through school that, um, you know, they're kind of wind in the sails of this creative idea, but I absolutely needed that to happen. I still need that to happen, and I honestly believe there's a way in which things I can't even imagine still need to happen before I have what I need um, to kind of do the work. Uh, and that's going to sound horribly tragic if I get hit by a commuter train tomorrow and my life ends. But, um, 
yeah i don't know call it faith call it delusion call it whatever you want but um Yeah, the thing I'm sort of thinking about is, you know, as the sort of first play millennium approaches is sort of happening, there's these sort of interstitial scenes or these sort of punctuated moments where Walter Pryor will kind of hear the fluttering of wings and he'll hear this distant angel's voice that says, like, the the angel is coming, prepare, prepare the way. And then, as I said, the angel kind of crashes in the ceiling and sort of announces to the room, which ends the play, is like, the great work begins. And, uh... You know, I have to admit, I'm still kind of uh, the Walter Pryor who's kind of shaking in his hospital bed, uh, listening to the distant uh, beating of wings and ruffling of feathers and hearing this kind of call, but I'm still waiting for the angel to kind of crash in through the ceiling. And, uh, you know, the trumpet blasts, and I can say the great work begins, because I kind of know what it is. It's kind of like that, uh, is it, uh, not Maria, what's that song uh, from West Side Story? Uh Something's coming, I don't know what it is, but it is gonna be great. It's that kind of thing. Could it be? Yes, it could. Something's coming, something good, if I can wait. All right, that's the first time I've sung in a long time, but I think you know what I'm talking about. It's in the offing, it's coming. Just gotta wait for the right time. So there you go. Well, <laughs> I'm not sure where that brings us. I'm not even sure how we got here necessarily, but uh, I feel like we, yeah, catastrophe was, was uh, well, I was going to say maybe not averted. <laughs> I'm not sure we got out of this unscathed, but I will say I felt like we were sort of driving toward a brick wall, and it was a bumpy road, and, uh, you know, I'm not saying we made it made it out of this sort of installment completely intact, but at least we made it out with our lives. We live to fight another day. And um, I don't know, I guess maybe because I have therapy tomorrow and I'm thinking about therapy in general lately, actually feeling like it's been pretty productive. Um, there's a way in which sitting down and recording this is a bit like therapy as well, which is, you know, it usually goes the worst when I have some type of objective, <laughs> when I think I'm trying to get somewhere, you know, or I'll sort of show up for a therapy session and think I'm going to talk about A, but I end up spending the whole time talking about something else. And usually that's the most generative thing. It's the time I try to talk about something else that feels the most forced and stilted. And that's when I start to think, oh, therapy is a waste of time. But when I just kind of show up and talk about whatever's at top of mind, it usually goes the best. And that's where, at least by the end of it, I have some sort of, you know, things sort of come together or I have some sort of epiphany or some, yeah, I don't know. I feel, I feel some type of motiva uh, motivation to pick up the conversation next week. And, um, you know, that's part of the lesson here too. I come in here trying to be all intentional, and uh, of course I look up after 20 minutes and think, what the fuck are you doing, man? You're talking nonsense. You know, sometimes you just got to stop, take a deep breath, check in with yourself, and even if, even if it's the last thing you want to talk about, you got to talk about what is really on your mind, which is, hey, dude, uh, you watched this play that was about following a, a calling, about being a prophet and uh, not heeding the call. And um, let's not forget that you have a calling that you're ignoring. And uh, that's an embarrassing thing to talk about and something I'm still not comfortable talking about all the time because I think people, I guess I worry how people hear that. They think that you're nuts or, um, 
you know, they're, yeah, they're just, they're, they're going to read into what you're saying. <laughs> um, you risk being misunderstood. Um, but it, all I need is to see, you know, creative p- uh, pieces of art like Angels in America to know that uh, that's not a silly thing. Um, that's actually something that a lot of us live with. And it's exactly the type of thing that could be staged and could be meaningful, um, you know, to thousands and thousands of people who read and see it, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not the silly thing that it sounds like. It's actually, it could be the most important thing you ever do, which is um, dare to believe that the thing you feel called to do could be something that the world needs to hear. So that's the thing I sort of beg you to consider this week. And uh, it's something I'll continue to chew over. Now, don't be surprised when I come back for this next installment and I'm talking about uh, zippity doo and other things and we don't talk, we don't touch on this for a while, but that's because it's a scary topic. And like therapy, there's a, th- a thousand other things that will steal my attention. But I'm sure we'll come back to this as well. So, um, yeah, let's put a pin in it, shall we? Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. And ciao for now, now, now.